There was no evidence that Governor, that Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around in other people's elections? Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. This show covers a number of topics, such as organized crime, drug traffickers, corrupt politicians, crony capitalism. The first story has to do with the fact that Robert Kraft was arrested for solicitation of prostitution. You probably came across the story. It was widely reported. The general crux of the story was that this spa that he went to was supposedly this haven for human trafficking. The prosecutors, they held press conferences and just were very public in their assertions that this business was a, again, all the women were victims of human trafficking and just with a lot of salacious details. When Kraft actually went to court, the prosecutors admitted that they didn't have any actual evidence of human trafficking. This is often the case with these prostitution slash human trafficking cases. Often the government will say that these are examples of human trafficking. That's how they're able to get these sort of extensive search warrants. Often it's really sort of a real cash cow for local governments because you can get a lot of federal money as long as you call this a human trafficking investigation rather than a prostitution investigation. But at the end of the day, because so much of this is posed, is we have to save these women who, who are victims of human trafficking. And if that is actually the case, obviously everybody would like to, to save a victim of human trafficking. What is often the case is that these people are not victims of human trafficking. They are free-thinking people involved in the sex industry. And the women who worked in the spa were arrested for prostitution. They weren't, quote-unquote, saved. The woman who actually had sex with Robert Kraft, the police, you know, they kind of followed her, investigated her, and found out that she had $43,000 tucked away in a safety deposit box in her bank. If this wasn't such a high-profile case, in my opinion, that money would have been confiscated or forfeited immediately. As of today, I don't know if that has been the case. Again, there is so much attention on this case. But again, this is what often happens. And really, one of the background stories that's really interesting um, is, that, is that the owner is a Chinese national who goes by the name of Cindy Yang. And she had this other side business. She has a selfie with Trump down there at Mar-a-Lago. Um, she was essentially somebody who seemed to be non-political as far as U.S. politics, but all of a sudden, um, during the 2016 campaign, she starts to donate quite a bit of money to Trump and different PACs related with him, nearly $60,000. Uh, but this side business of hers was marketed um, in China as basically offering political access to the president. And again, she's showing herself with these pictures with Trump and I believe different members of his family, if I'm, if I'm remembering right. And this leads to a much more high-profile story when 
you've probably heard about a person who was arrested at Mar-a-Lago as a suspected Chinese spy. It's a woman, a Chinese national. I'm going to mispronounce her name. I believe you would pronounce it Yuxing Zhang. Ultimately, she was not charged with any kind of espionage crimes. Um, she was charged with illegal entry and lying to federal agents. Uh, but when she was arrested at Mar-a-Lago, she had two Chinese passports, four cell phones, a laptop, an external hard drive, and a thumb drive that contained malware. So, you know, on the surface level, it does certainly look suspicious that this person was acting in some sort of espionage role. But in sort of that interesting twist, she was, again, connected with that Cindy Yang person who was the owner of the, the Orchids spa where Robert Kraft was arrested. So basically, this uh, the lady Zhang, she was arrested again for lying. So she tried to get into Mar-a-Lago. She said that she was there to go use the swimming pool and later she she admitted that she was trying to do some sort of like business lobbying um, and even referenced a sort of non-existent UN uh, nations event and again this is in connection with the Cindy Yang person it's part of this group they call themselves the United Nations Chinese Friendship Association which seems to have some loose ties to the Chinese government the story illustrated a lot about just general influence peddling, the, the vulnerability of the White House, just the fact that Trump spends so much time in Mar-a-Lago. There, there are major security concerns. There, there are just basic ethical concerns. I'm going to go into that in a little bit. But basically, kind of dive to it in a different direction. A conclusion that I think most people, if you're an independent thinker, would come to is that the standard of ethics has dropped drastically in connection with the Trump administration. There's just a ton of partisanship. If a Democrat were in office, the Republicans would absolutely go crazy if, if these same type of things were occurring. But since there's an R in front of Trump's name there, uh, they're just willing to look the other way. There's um, a lawsuit, a number of emoluments lawsuits have been filed against the president. Um, and if you're not familiar with that term, it's basically um, a U.S. official can't accept a gift or a payment from a foreign government um, without congressional consent. And essentially what's happened is a number of different Trump's properties, they, they were fairly popular before he became president for, you know, anytime some sort of conference or any sort of event. They were popular with foreign governments. But the fact is there's become this dramatic increase in popularity for his properties ever since he's become president. And anybody can sort of read between the lines there that there's there's an implied quid pro quo. Um, and the fact is, is that the State Department has allowed um, seven different foreign governments to, to rent his properties without, without mentioning this to Congress. I want to get back to that sidebar. There's a number of different emolument lawsuits that have been filed against the president, one of which is by a large group of congressional members, and a federal judge recently denied Trump's attorneys um, their motion to, to dismiss the case. Um, so hopefully that case will go forward. Long story short, this has sort of been my opinion for a long time. There are a number of different scandals associated with the Trump administration, and obviously there's this Mueller investigation, but in my opinion, the scandals are right there, right out in front of us. There may be something larger, but I think that there's these very obvious, clear corruption cases that need to be addressed 
So obviously we don't want the president of the United States to be accepting gifts from foreign governments because there's obviously it affects U.S. policy. But there's also, you know, again, a high level of, of do, domestic corruption tied to, to his businesses. Uh, ProPublica did a, a recent investigation. It just showed a simple $1,000 bar bill at Mar-a-Lago. It was tied to different members of the State Department. The bill was sent to the State Department, but they refused to pay for it. Ultimately, the White House paid for it. The, whether the State Department pays for it, the White House pays for it, this is all the U.S. taxpayers, and at the end of the day, it's all benefiting Trump's business. There's a reason he doesn't want to spend his weekends in the White House. He makes a lot of money from traveling down to Mar-a-Lago practically every weekend. And again, the taxpayers are paying for it. Not all of this goes into his pockets, but th there's just a tremendous bill to be paid uh, for all of this travel. But long story short, this investigation, it pointed out that time and time again, the Trump business tries to build the, the maximum amount allowable within federal rules to the U.S. government. And in fact, there have been some new, there have been some new rules in place. I don't think the actual rulemaking process in any way was connected with Trump, but he certainly has taken advantage of the new rules uh, to where they can continue to build the U.S. government at the actual at even higher dollar amounts. There are certain people that use the term uh, banana republic. You know, when you when you read about these types of things and say Russia or Ukraine or South America, you know, we look sort of cynically upon their countries, but a lot of this stuff is starting to happen right before our own eyes. And there's a large segment of the population who are not bothered by it simply because of the party that the president um, is working on behalf of. So again, there's just a lot of influence peddling in D.C. I do need to point out that the former White House Chief of Staff, the former, he, he's also the former Secretary of Homeland Defense, John Kelly, uh, he just took a job with a company called Caliburn International. Um, essentially, this is a company that has these government contracts for unaccompanied migrant children. It, this this same company has a number of other former military members on their staff. Basically, what I'm referring to is this revolving door between government and the private sector. As far as I know, there are no direct signs of conflict of interest with John Kelly in assigning any sort of um, government contract to that particular company. But just even at the minimal level, it, it, it just raises a, a bunch of red flags. In my mind, the more um, the more pertinent example is another person who's left government to take a very high profile private sector job and that's Nikki Haley the former US ambassador to the UN um, she's now on the board of directors of Boeing the I mean you're all familiar with Boeing for their airplanes but they're also a major US military contractor so again this person who had a, a very aggressive foreign policy stance definitely leaning towards interventionism who then goes on to take a job for a military contract, there, there's a very clear conflict of interest. Um, and this is what most people refer to as the military-industrial complex. So many of these former Pentagon officials or government officials end up taking jobs in the very same companies that, that supply all, all of our military might. And by the way, before she even took this job, um, she was reportedly um, accepting no less than $200,000 in order to take these different speaking engagements. I've mentioned this before in the past. Most of you are aware of this. There, there are a number of different foreign government officials who take these sort of speaking events. 
the truth of the matter is nobody's worth that kind of money, especially not a former government official. These are basically soft bribes. Obama and the Clintons, they were sort of well, well known for that by taking these different um, high-paying speaking um, gigs for, for different Wall Street firms. So mind you, when um, somebody like Nikki Haley joins a company like, like Boeing, it, it also helps to kind of scrub their name. In my eyes, it doesn't, but in the, with the average American, it does tend to sort of scrub their image. When you, when you get this high-profile person, it gives a certain level of credibility. It shouldn't, but that, that is sort of the, the, the desired effect. And you have to remember that in the background that there have been these different um, crashes associated with um, Boeing 737s, um, one in uh, Ethiopia, another in Indonesia. Uh, the New York Times did a really good piece uh, recently where they interviewed a number of, a number of different whistleblowers from, from within the company. Um, basically, they pointed out to these different issues where the company was just taking all types of different shortcuts, um, trying to just trying to rush production and the, the basic minimal safety standards were being overlooked in order to push out this product. Um, in particular with these jets, there was an issue where metal shavings were in the engines and they would help, it would then eventually in some cases make the a short circuit in the engine and lead to crashes. But it, just to kind of big picture it for you, there's one particular whistleblower who was interviewed and just straight up said he would never fly on that type of plane. He was there on the assembly line, saw what was happening, and he told he, he told America or the, everyone that he would never fly on that type of plane. So take that for what it's worth. Um, and and ultimately it came down to the fact that Boeing um, had created this new plant in South Carolina with a ton of different workers who just weren't qualified for the job in order just to, to max out their profits and just to max out their profits at the expense of basic safety standards. So I've mentioned before that just a sort of this sort of influence um, that, that goes along with the the revolving door between government and the private sector. But I really want to talk more about where it's it's no longer even influence; it's outright legal corruption. Um, and there was a fantastic report that came out recently in the Intercept. And it involves former representative from California, Ed Reese. He, he had basically served in Congress for, I think, close to two decades. And a couple of years ago, he was actually the, the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And what this report had to do was with the fact that at one point, back in 2017, during his speech on the floor, he was reciting basically word for word from the key talking points um, for a Saudi Arabian lobbyist, and this speech was to was in favor of the U.S. supporting war in Yemen. If you're not familiar with the war in Yemen, you can basically oversimplify it and call it a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates versus Iran. Again, their proxies are essentially fighting in Yemen. It's basically the largest humanitarian crisis on the planet. A recent UN report came out. They found that 233,000 people have died. There's rampant starvation and disease as a result of blockades. Um, I think, like yeah, over 100,000 children have died in this in this war. 
Um, and again, we're, we're calling it this proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, essentially sort of like our Cold War with Russia, or I should say the Soviet Union. But at the end of the day, the United States is still arming these different groups. We're making a ton of money. That, that sort of was highlighted after the murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi. When, you know, when Trump got a lot of pushback, he just went on the record and ultimately said, no, we, our private companies make too much money sending weapons to these countries. We, don't, we essentially don't care about their human rights record. Uh, but just to get back to, to Ed Royce, at the end of 2019, he decided not to run again for office. So what does he do like so many corrupt government officials? They end up going into the private sector. He works for a law firm called Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. This is a law firm that also does lobbying that was kind of put on the microscope after the Khashoggi murder because they work as a lobbyist for the Saudi government. Uh, but that law firm has refused to stop lobbying for them. Um, and he's taken a very high-profile job working at that law firm. Now, I do need to note that when he was taking the, the talking points, it was from a different lobbying firm in the U.S. that works on behalf of the Saudi government. But again, ultimately, at the end of the day, he's basically just working as this sort of prop for a foreign government simply because they can pay enough money for him to do so. But to get back to that war in Yemen, I do think that Trump's comments, it did sort of kind of galvanize Congress in a way. Uh, Congress has just been sitting by the wayside, allowing all this to happen for so many years. Um, very few in Congress really wanted to, to sort of step up and make a comment on Yemen. It's sort of a small minority of Democrats and a very small uh, minority of Republicans, uh, most notably Rand Paul. By the end of the day, Congress eventually did actually uh, place a vote on the war in Yemen recently, and both the Senate and the House did approve to stop um, supporting the war in Yemen. But, unfortunately, Trump, who rarely ever uses veto power, this was only his second time using a veto, this is when he decided to use a veto. It was to, to continue our war in Yemen. You can make your own conclusions as to why he wants to continue the war in Yemen, which, by the way, has no real actual national security implications for the United States. This is just pure geopolitics and greed on the part of the U.S. And I want to talk about another example of foreign lobbying and the direct influence here in the United States. This one was, was not as um, widely reported and it has to do with the government of South Sudan. Um, essentially a number of different former U.S. diplomats. Uh, they, they work for a firm called Gameful Solutions, Inc., which is, boy, that is an appropriate term for the name of your company. They have a $3.7 million contract with the government of South Sudan. So, so what does $3.7 million get you? Um, essentially, back in the day, the U.S. government helped to, to broker a peace deal with, with South Sudan, but one of the, the the requirements of the deal was that there had to be a war crimes tribunal. Even if you you, you don't know much about Sudan or South Sudan, I mean, you're probably aware that there's just been the country's been just ravished with war, and it's created thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugee. Or actually, I think um, I think over a few million refugees actually famine. 
um, the government's guilty of all kinds of war crimes. Again, if if you got a, if you got a few million dollars laying around, you can you can really influence U.S. policy simply in this way because you can find influential former officials who will take a major payday and just totally cast aside any sort of ethical vision. There's also been a number of sanctions against the country that the, that these lobbyists are trying to get lifted. There's an organization called the Century. It's actually founded by George Clooney. So again, please try to put aside any thoughts that you have about maybe like a Hollywood actor in politics. But this organization really does fantastic work. They have really strong investigative journalists. And they, they've done a lot of work in particular with South Sudan, but a lot of different African countries, just pointing to um, extensive corruption within these different regimes. And long story short, the, the president there in South Sudan is guilty of all kinds of crimes. Um, it's basically a kleptocrat. He doesn't have as much of a spotlight on him as opposed to, say, somebody like a, a Vladimir Putin or other different regimes. But at the end of the day, again, I just want to point out just how, how easily our foreign policy can be manipulated by a corrupt foreign government, as long as you're willing to pay for the right lobbyists. And so really, the final story that I just kind of want to point upon, we're talking about corruption in Africa and, and the role that these, these different foreign countries have. There's, um, there's been a number of different um, corruption schemes involving the oil industry in Nigeria, but there, there's a recent story that involves Shell and a Spanish oil company called Eni. Long story short, these two companies gained this incredibly lucrative contract for drilling, for drilling for oil in Nigeria. They basically skirted any sort of the standard rules. Essentially, they're able to go in there, pay rock bottom prices to drill even below what the, the IMF standard is, and if you know anything about the IMF, that's the International Monetary Fund, it's a, if you know much about the International Monetary Fund, there, let's just say that the International Monetary Fund is not looking out for the best interests of third world nations. It's funded by major national powers, mostly by the U United States, and again, they are not looking out for these countries with much smaller economic might. But again, these two major companies are able to go in there, drill in Nigeria with little or basically nothing going to the Nigerian people. The deal was for, I believe, around $1.2 billion, uh, but essentially it was worth around $6 billion. And the way that they get this, it wasn't from shrewd negotiating. It was through open bribery. The former oil minister of Nigeria is a guy named Dan Atete. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Long story short, the bribes went to the former oil minister who actually even um, awarded some of this contract to his own oil company uh, called Malibu. But essentially, the, the oil minister was a, like a point man to, to pass out the bribes to you know a bunch of different corrupt officials, including the president of Nigeria. At the end of the day, it's just another one of these examples. Um, you'll, you'll hear a term in economics uh, they refer to as the, the resources curse. Um, and, you, and you do, you see it throughout the world that and many times these, these just, these authoritarian governments with, with horrible human rights records are often in countries that have vast resources. Um, it, it really is a paradox, but 
in many ways the the country's resources get exploited uh, for the few and it really does nothing to benefit the many and just helps to empower again an authoritarian regime <laughs> so on that very bright note i guess i'm going to conclude the podcast these stories are, are linked on my website I ask if, if you want to support the podcast, you can support it directly financially. But really one of the best ways to do it is just to go out there and grab a copy of my three-book series called Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So until next time, thank you much. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have a license. Price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus a monthly payment of five percent of the gross of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.